Do you believe in life after death? Heaven? Hell? Purgatory? Is it possible to get to the very threshold of the great beyond and live to tell the tale? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer, an actor, and a skeptic who is also really gullible, which makes it hard to keep an opinion for very long. This week... Who's there? Uh, hey, God? Uh, I was just laying in a hospital bed. I don't know where I am. Sigh. I'm busy. Just go back. I'll get to you later. Also, your grandmother says she knows you were the one who broke her china bowl. She forgives you. Now go back! Near-death experiences. Are they real? Today, I'll tell you three stories of people who insist they traveled to the very brink and back. In 1991, 35-year-old singer-songwriter Pam Reynolds was in Virginia Beach promoting a new album when she very suddenly and very alarmingly forgot how to talk. Like, one minute she was chatting away, and the next minute she went to open her mouth and couldn't remember how to make words. Turns out Pam had an aneurysm at the base of her brain. And for those of you, like me, who have heard and used the word aneurysm a million times without actually knowing what the fuck an aneurysm is, an aneurysm is basically when an artery wall gets really thin and can burst, causing internal bleeding, which is very not good. The most terrifying thing about an aneurysm is that you or I could be walking around with one as we speak, completely unaware. I swear to God, our bodies are our worst enemies. Anyway. Pam was suddenly like, how do I words? And was rushed to a hospital where they found this leaking aneurysm on Pam's brain. Her brain surgeon decided that the only way to operate on the aneurysm was to put her at a cardiac standstill. Basically, her heart had to be stopped so they could cut this artery without the blood pumping through it. The piece on NPR about Pam said they drained her head of blood like draining oil out of a car engine, a description which is, in my opinion, excessive. Like, we get it. They got all the blood out of her head. Okay, so Pam is on ice. Her head is bloodless. She is flatlined. Her eyes are taped shut. And just briefly here, let's reflect on the fact that taping eyes shut is a regular step in major surgery. Because why? Imagine the surgery that forced them to make that policy. Like the surgeon has some kind of electric scalpel right next to the patient's heart and suddenly the patient's eyes just spring open and everyone's like, oh my God! And the surgeon jumps and just like slices through a bunch of super important stuff. There's a couple of moments of complete panicked silence and finally someone goes, um, maybe we should tape their eyes shut next time. Anyway. So, to be clear, Pam's heart and brain were both stopped. She was D-E-D dead. The plan was, when the surgery was finished, they would warm Pam's body up to regular, alive person temperature and then do the shock paddle thingies to restart her heart, like jumping a dead car engine. 
There were molded earbuds in Pam's ears, playing clicks at a decimal level of a jackhammer or a jet engine taking off. That way, if any part of Pam's brain registered the sound, it would appear on the monitor and they would know that brain activity was not all the way dead. And look, I'm no brain surgeon, so I don't know what happens when the patient you're working on is supposed to be dead and then isn't. Like, they're about to cut out the aneurysm, and then all of a sudden the monitor shows brain activity. What do you do? Be like, I guess she's not dead enough? Why anyone goes into this line of work is beyond me. But I applaud you. As Pam later reports, as the surgery is beginning, Pam, dear, lifeless Pam, hears the drill turn on. It's buzz coming out like a natural D. The doctor, or nurse by her legs, reported that the artery was too small. I don't know if you know this, but apparently they go through your legs to get to your brain during surgery. I may have mentioned before that I'm not a surgeon. Another doctor says to try the other leg. Pam then says she popped out of herself through her head. She could see 20 doctors in the room, which seems like an immense number of people, but I don't know how brain surgery works. She looked down on the scene and could see the tray with the drill bits and the drill itself, which she said looked like the handle of her electric toothbrush. That's when she was pulled toward the bright white light. As she stepped into the light, her dead grandmother greeted her. Pam wondered to herself if she deserved to be there. She wasn't a perfect person, she thought. I'm not sure how she knew where there was, but I imagine if you're dead and you're walking toward a bright light, it's a good guess you're in heaven. And her grandmother said, As a child, we expected that you would spill your milk. It's the manner which you clean it up that gives us cause for pride. Which is at once beautiful and full of grace and also kind of petty. And listen, I get that it's a metaphor for how you handle the mistakes you inevitably make in life. But like, couldn't she have just been like, I'm happy to see you. Like, you're really going to greet me at the pearly gates with a fucking riddle? Her grandmother told her that the light was what happened when God breathed. And Pam thought, I am standing in the breath of God. But it wasn't her time she wasn't allowed to fully enter the light. Pam, back in the operating room, hovering over herself on the operating table, felt completely emotionally detached from her body. She said her body looked like a train wreck and she did not want to re-enter herself. And to be fair, I imagine that if you're looking down at your own dead meat suit all cut open for surgery, you wouldn't want to get back in it either. It was at this moment that she was in a psychic battle with herself over whether or not to return to her body that, in my opinion, the worst possible thing happened. Just as dead Pam was struggling with whether or not to go back to being alive Pam, she felt herself dive back into her body, which she said felt like diving into ice-cold water. She said it was tremendously painful. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that just in that moment, as Pam made the ultimate decision to go back to her earthly form, 
she heard Hotel California playing in the operating room. The lyric, you can check out, but you can never leave, floated through Pam's awareness, and she thought, that's in poor taste. And honestly, if I were at the Pearly Gates and St. Peter or whoever said, if you enter here, you can never go back, but you'll also never have to hear Hotel California again, I would be up and over those gates before he could get them open. I want to go on record now and say that if I am ever having surgery and the doctors decide to play Hotel California during my surgery, I am going to make sure I die and then spend the rest of time haunting those doctors by playing Hotel California on repeat wherever they go until they die. So, here is my question. You know how you need your eyes to see? Like, you know how the human brain is basically a computer? The motherboard for the machine that is your body? There's a few things that need to happen in order for your brain to operate properly. First and foremost, your brain needs to be functioning. Like, it needs to be alive. Your eyes can be open all day long, but if the part of your brain that takes in visual information and tells you what the information is isn't working, you won't be seeing shit. Your child could be screaming baby shark into your ear at the top of their lungs, but if that part of your brain is off, you will be blissfully unaware of this assault on your senses. So how could it possibly be that Pam's brain was turned all the way off and she saw and heard what was happening in the operating room? I'm going to admit this to you now, and you can laugh at me all you want, but get ready to pause so you can laugh without missing stuff. It literally never occurred to me before doing the research for this episode that when people claim to have out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences like the one Pam claimed to have had, how are they seeing anything without their eyes, you know? Okay, if you're done laughing now, just think about that. Like, if the wispy thing that comes out of your body is real, like your soul or whatever, how does it take in the world without a functioning brain? Really think about that. Oh, you're not laughing anymore, are you? Now ask yourself this. If I believe that people have these experiences, how do I explain it technically? And not for nothing, but don't even get me started on the instances of blind people reporting being able to see things during their near-death experiences. We'll save that for another episode. Pam's neurosurgeon says he can't explain Pam's experience medically. He asserts that what Pam claims to have seen and heard during her surgery is medically inexplicable. Dr. Michael Sabum, a cardiologist who studies near-death experiences, asked Pam and her doctors for her records so that he could do his own review. He, too, said that he could not find a medical explanation for Pam's experience. He checked the surgery notes and found that there were, indeed, 20 people in the operating room during Pam's surgery. Hotel California was playing when they jump-started Pam's heart, though why that would be noted in the surgery notes as though it were an important detail is beyond me. 
Is someone standing there noting down each song that plays during surgery? There was a note about the discussion about the artery and the legs being too small and the suggestion to try the other leg. Dr. Sabum looked at the model of bone saw used on Pam's head, and it did indeed look like an electric toothbrush. But before your mind is permanently blown, let me introduce you to Dr. Gerald Worley, an anesthesiologist who thinks Pam's story is completely unextraordinary. Dr. Worley believes that all the activity happening in Pam's brain happened in the moments before and after her brain was essentially turned off and then turned back on. Worley thinks it's likely the earbuds playing the incredibly loud clicks in Pam's ear were ill-fitting, letting sound in, or she was basically hearing the sound waves as they got transmitted through the table. There are relatively rare instances of people being aware of their surroundings under general anesthesia. He believes that while Pam was anesthetized, before they had essentially turned off her brain, they had to open her skull in order to drain it, like you drain the oil from a car engine, in case you forgot. And in the moment the bone saw made contact with her bone, she regained some level of consciousness, even while she was medically paralyzed. And I have to say, I think the only thing worse than having your brain cut open with a tiny buzzsaw is being aware that it's happening in the moment and being completely paralyzed. As for the images Pam claims to have seen, Worley thinks they were basically conjectures based on what she was hearing. And in all fairness, if you're in a medical setting and you hear something that sounds like a drill, you're probably going to have a relatively accurate picture of a medical drill in your head. Unless you've never been to the dentist, in which case, turn this off immediately and go get your teeth cleaned for the love of everyone. And I can get on board with the hypothesis that Pam maybe somehow felt the drill's sound transmit through the operating table. The drill is close enough to the table for that to be possible, sure. But the conversations going on around her? Hotel California? Even if she was able to hear those sounds through the operating table, which seems like a stretch... Wouldn't they have sounded like the grown-ups in the Peanuts cartoons? Like, how is she going to get her artery is too small from... As for the experience Pam had inside the breath of God with her grandmother, Worley believes that's just a trip from the anesthetic and that that experience happened within the time the machines were still registering brain activity. And of course, there's no way to verify when or even if Pam actually experienced what she experienced. And I do have to say, as someone who has had ketamine treatments for depression, that shit is very trippy. Ketamine is the drug used to put people under for surgery, but given at the right dose, you remain awake and go on a magic carpet ride through your own mind, which can be really awesome or really fucking terrible. But I imagine if I were going through a life or death surgery and I was one of the rare people who remained conscious through the anesthesia, my psyche would probably take me on a trip to what I thought was the edge of life as we know it. Except in my version, my mom would probably be like, you were terrible at cleaning up spilled milk, go back and do it better. 
Pam died in 2011 from heart failure. Whether that was a very delayed side effect of having been put in artificial cardiac arrest for 10 hours in 1991 or just bad luck, it's just more evidence that the human body is looking for ways to get rid of you. However, there have been those whose near-death experiences may very well have been the thing that saved their lives. In February 2006, after a four-year battle with lymphoma, Anita Morjani's body was done. Riddled with lemon-sized tumors from her neck to below her abdomen, from lymphoma she had been too scared to treat with chemotherapy. Her brain and lungs were filled with fluids. Her organs were failing. By the time Anita's husband got her to the hospital, she was already in a coma, slipping out of consciousness completely. She was swiftly admitted. Dr. Chen, a doctor neither Anita nor her husband had met before, told her husband that Anita had maybe 36 hours to live. While the chaos of -of end-of-life plans took place around her, Anita herself felt completely detached from her physical form. She saw the look of anguish on her husband's face, and she wanted to tell him that she was finally okay. She wasn't in pain anymore. That everything was going to be all right. Her eyes were closed, in case that wasn't clear. As the doctors assumed she was slipping closer and closer to death, Anita felt herself expand no longer confined by her own body or by space and time. She became aware of her brother in India. He had not yet received the call to come to Hong Kong to say goodbye to his sister, and yet somehow he felt the sudden urge to go to her. He knew she was coming to the end. And as he couldn't get a flight at the nearest airport, Anita was somehow there with him, aware of his three-hour car trip to the next closest airport as he rushed to be by her side. Anita was aware of her father and best friend, both of whom had died years earlier. She said that in this awareness, she understood that all time, past, present, and future existed simultaneously. She was experiencing past lives. And even though the doctors had already written up the report that her organs were in failure and she would be dead within hours, she knew that her survival hinged on her own decision that she had to make in this weird space of consciousness. Whether or not to go back into her body and live, or to continue on to a space from which she would never be able to return. But first she got to hang out with Jesus, which is nice. And she was like, this place is amazing. And Jesus was like, yeah, Sib, this place is literally everything. And she was like, can't I stay? And he was like, nah. At first she didn't want to go back to the body that had been riddled with pain for four years. In that moment, she felt unconditional love and was absolutely pain-free. Why would she want to return? But something told her that she needed to go back. As Anita recounts the story, somehow, while she lay unconscious in a hospital bed, she suddenly knew why she had gotten cancer. She was suddenly aware of having lived her life in abject fear of rejection. She believed she had gotten cancer as a kind of physical manifestation of her fears. In that space, Anita knew she had to go back. She knew her cancer would go away. She knew. 
About 36 hours after entering the hospital, when she should have been taking her final breaths, Anita's eyes fluttered open, to the absolute shock of everyone. Okay, I hear you. You're saying, okay, Daisy, first of all, that's a pretty story, and like, it's beautifully written, but there's no way to verify that anything she said happened actually happened. And couldn't it just be that she had a terrific ride on the morphine cloud and somehow miraculously recovered? To which I say, first of all, thank you. And also, I know. And do you think I'd really leave it there and be like, that's it, kids. Just everybody take a deep breath and stop yelling. I got you. When her doctor came in, Anita said, hello, Dr. Chen, which wouldn't be that weird, except that Anita had never seen Dr. Chen before. As far as anyone knew, Anita had been in a coma when her husband met Dr. Chen. He asked her how she knew his name, and she was like, what do you mean? You're the doctor that admitted me. You're the doctor that told us my organs were in failure. And he was like, uh, how do you know that? I told your husband that outside your room, where you were in a coma. And she was like, uh, dude, I was aware of all space and time. And by the way, tell your nurses that next time they're having trouble finding someone's veins who's in a coma, don't be like, ugh, what's the point? She's dying anyway. Because that was apparently an actual thing that happened. That nurse ended up apologizing profusely to Anita and I would imagine has spent the rest of their lives in complete silence. Okay, so maybe she could hear while she was in her coma, which is a terrifying thought, and I hope to God they start to figure out whether or not people can actually hear while they're in comas so we can stop saying things like, I know you can't hear me, but I cheated on you with your brother. God, that feels so good to get off my chest. Or, she better not be leaving any money to Cousin Frankie. I hate that guy. And maybe she sort of deduced that her organs were in failure and it was a lucky guess that it was Dr. Chen who made that diagnosis. But Anita also described physical things that were happening to her body during this time. Coughing fits and other gross things that I don't need to describe in detail. Things that we don't normally think a person in a coma can be aware of. But much weirder than anything she might have been aware of IRL during her coma... In the few weeks following her coma, her tumors shrank by 75%. Anita Morjani went from the brink of death, racked with cancer, to relatively cancer-free within weeks. And again, before you go running through the streets in complete awe from the miraculousness of this story, I want you to meet Dr. Downer, who is here to tell you that most likely the cause of Anita's amazing recovery is the chemotherapy she had after waking up from the coma. The chemotherapy she conveniently leaves out of the story. Maybe it's in her book, but it isn't in the three first-person recountings I watched, and who has time to read whole books? That said, though, even Dr. Downer, whose real name is Dr. Peter Coe, admits that the degree to which the tumor shrank and even the fact that the chemo was able to work at all, given how toxic it is and that her organs were already in such terrible shape, is pretty amazing. In an article in the South China Morning Post, Dr. Coe said something either switched off the mutated genes 
or caused them to commit a sort of cell suicide. He said, Either her mind or body was able to send a message to the cancer cells to turn off the mutated genes. Chemotherapy does work well with Hodgkin's, but I've never seen it work like this. Anita is still alive and is spreading the message she believes she received from some all-knowing force during her experience. To live fearlessly. Which, if you're going to spend your life preaching anything, that seems like a good, fairly universal thing to preach. But not everyone who touches the threshold of death and lives to tell the story has such pleasant things to report. In 2015, reality TV producer Jonathan Koch was in tip-top shape. He was one of those people who, like, exercised on a daily basis while also producing TV like the Emmy award-winning docuseries The Kennedys. He kept his body in fighting shape. One day, on his way to a reality TV conference, which I imagine is where you go to have What's-Her-Face Vanderpump sign your butt so you can get it tattooed on, Jonathan got really sick. Like, your worst flu ever on steroids. Sick. Jonathan drove himself to the emergency room where doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, but shot him up full of morphine and sent him on his way. So now, doped up on morphine, Jonathan dragged himself to the airport and got on a flight to get to the conference in D.C. because, he later told Nightline, The conference was a very important trip for my team, and they had been preparing for a long time. I needed to be there. And that, in a sentence, is the definition of how the work ethic in this country is literally killing us. Within 24 hours of landing in D.C., Jonathan was in the ICU. His body was in full septic shock, and the doctors still couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. At this point, doctors told him to get in touch with his loved ones and say goodbye. So it's then that Jonathan contacted his girlfriend. I wonder if he knew that if he'd contacted her any earlier, she would have demanded he not get on that flight. He also did not contact his 15-year-old daughter. And again, I'll say people have all different ways of handling stress, but not contacting your daughter when the doctors are like, you're about to die, man? Call your daughter and tell her you love her before they put you in a medically induced coma. They put him in a medically induced coma. Everything in Jonathan's body was in failure. His heart, his lungs, everything. No one knew why or how he got sick. No one really knew how to treat him because they didn't know what was wrong, except that he was just rapidly dying. So, over the next two and a half weeks that Jonathan lay in a coma, he, like Pam Reynolds and Anita Morjani, had either dreams, hallucinations, or actually journeyed to the fringes of life. Unlike Pam and Anita, however, Jonathan, it seems, went to the other place. Where Pam and Anita stood in the breath of God and spoke with Jesus and felt one with the universe... Jonathan was tethered to a slab of wood, bound only with an untied piece of twine, but from which he couldn't move. 
A family of ghouls with giant faces and jagged teeth were holding him prisoner. They would surround him and talk about him, but never to him. He could hear them say, don't worry, he can't get up. Every morning they would bring in writhing, venomous snakes to bite him, one by one, to determine which posed the biggest threat to their livestock. Excuse me? Who did what with what now? Yikes, bro. Yikes. The snakes were both terrifying and physically torturously painful. Now, in an article in LA Magazine about Jonathan's ordeal, the author writes, Then on the final day of his coma, Jonathan saw himself in an empty, misty room with two doors that he somehow understood to be the way back to life and the way forward into death. As he walked across this misty room, he finally had the same kind of experience Anita Morjani had, feeling like he was experiencing all of time in one moment and that he was connected to everything. A voice asked him, Do you want to keep doing what you're doing? And his first response was, Uh, getting bitten by snakes every morning? No thanks, Bob. The voice came back, If you choose to live, there will be a price to pay that is so heavy that at times you'll regret it. If you do decide to go back, it will be the fight of your life. Jonathan chose the door back to life because, I would imagine, whatever the heavy price he would have to pay was, it couldn't have been worse than being held hostage by ghouls with jagged teeth who poke deadly snakes at you. Also, he owed his daughter a phone call. To this day, no one really knows why Jonathan got so sick. All they really know is that his immune system was so awesome because of the amazing shape he kept himself in. And that's probably what saved him from the mysterious illness. That and not wanting to get bitten by snakes for eternity. So, what do you think? Did these three people come toe-to-toe with beings from the great beyond? Did they really see and hear what they say they saw and heard? Or were they on really seriously medically-induced trips? And even if they were tripping, is it still possible that they didn't also peer into whatever awaits us on the other side? Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. From November 2000 through March 2001, a person began posting messages on internet forums claiming to be a time traveler. He said he was an American soldier who'd been sent back to the year 1975 and was on a stopover in the year 2000 for personal reasons. Seems ridiculous, right? The internet thought so, too. Until his predictions started coming true. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. Our voice actor for this episode was Raymond J. Lee. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 